Message from Starfleet Command, top priority. You are listening to the Trek Ranks Podcast, a member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. This is episode 162, featuring the top five one-off relatives. Welcome, Star Trek fans. I am Jim Morehouse. I'm the host of the Trek Ranks podcast. And tonight, we are getting off again on our ongoing series of one-off topics. Tonight, it is one of those deep-cut topics that you're only going to hear on Trek Ranks. We're doing top five one-off relatives so I guess that's just what it sounds like, a character that is a relative of a regular or recurring character. I mean, I guess technically almost everybody's a relative of somebody, but the idea is uh, a relative to someone we know and love in the Trek universe, one-off relatives, but we'll, we'll see how everybody tackles this one in their prime directive. So let's introduce our two great guests tonight. First, she is returning for her seventh overall appearance on Trek Ranks, coming to us live. From the Florida Relay Station, it's Debbie Maltasanti. Debbie. Hey, Jim. Always glad to be back. Excited for this one. Definitely excited to hear everybody else. Glad to have you back. And our second guest, one of our favorites, back for his third Trek Ranks topic, hailing us from Edinburgh in the Scotland sector. It's the great Lee Hutchison. Welcome back, Lee. Thank you very much, Jim. I've really enjoyed doing Trek Ranks homework this week. So looking forward to sharing my workings with the class. All right. I can't wait. Uh, I'm going to call you Hutch all the way through this because I just can't not. Quite right. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Going to be a great show. Let's get into our Trek Ranks recalibration. What are you recalibrating? Everything. Um, it's, it's a sweeping, uh, a recalibration of all systems. Okay, the Trek Race Charter has two clauses. One, we rank Treks, we can have a fun conversation about Star Trek, and two, the ranks don't matter. We just use them as the framework to have a deep dive conversation about all the things we love about Trek. And as Vulcan Master likes to tell us each week... Infinite diversity. In infinite combinations there are no wrong answers at trek ranks this show is all about sharing the things we love about trek and we love it all from tos to tng straight to the enterprise and the kelvin timeline now discovery picard strange new world short treks lower decks and prodigy as well it's all fair game here on the trek ranks podcast black alert black alert and a reminder that this episode of trek ranks is current through the Star Trek Strange New World's third, uh, second season, third episode tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, which is the 886th episode of Star Trek across the past 56 years. And one final reminder, we use episodes as a shorthand term, but the 13 films are always in play as well. Hailing frequencies open. Thank you, Mr. Warf. You can hail me directly on Twitter at Trek Ranks or at Oh, at Enterprise X are currently suspended on Twitter. <laughs> so I guess it's just at Trek Ranks. And you can see our extensive rankings of all the tracks at trekranks.com. And don't forget to also call leave us a message with your own picks at 609-512-LLAP at 609-512-5527. I got suspended because I made a joke about the gallows from all the worlds of stage, Star Trek Prodigy. And apparently that was not okay. <laughs> so uh, we'll see if it ever comes back. Okay, Debbie and Lee, let everybody know if they can get a hold of you on subspace. Debbie. Um, I am... Still hanging in there on Twitter for mostly for Trek stuff at Silverdoe25. I'm also on Mastodon under the same 
Lee, how about you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Lee Hutchison underscore and Star Trek VHS. And you can find me on my own podcast, Filibuster and the A24 Project. Love it. And the Star Trek VHS account, we love that. Okay, let's run a diagnostic cycle to get into today's show. Computer, run a level two diagnostic. So a couple of key things just to go through quickly in our diagnostic cycle first. This is our sixth topic in our one-off series. Previously, we've done one-off villains, heroes, romances, Cleons, and guest stars 1.0. because We're going to do that one again because there's too many guest stars. And so now we're doing relatives, and we're going to try and be, I guess, be pretty strict in how we're defining one-off appearances. We always try to do that. You know, which means exactly that. Any character that's appeared in Star Trek just one time. So do your research and we'll hopefully get a perfect score tonight on our 15 picks. But who knows? And the rules are made to be broken. Like, like what counts is a if a character's in one episode, but then there's a photo of them in another episode. Does that count? Who knows? And of course, with this one, you could probably maybe get a little creative in defining exactly what a relative is, too. So we'll see. let's let's get into our prime directive now and see what our two panelists did. Because they know about Prime Directive. They know everything I know, sir. And you're about to know everything we know about our Prime Directive. So, Debbie, let's start with you. How did you break it down? I know you didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this because I got you in on short notice. So, so how'd you how'd you look at this? I made a really long list. I started to have so I had to do a little cross-checking. I found a couple of my picks were actually, unfortunately, two-offs. So I had to <laughs> swoosh them off. And as I was narrowing it down, I just decided my prime directive in solidarity for Star Trek Prodigy, all of my picks are kids. Oh, inter- oh that's Love good. It. Okay, that's good. Yes, we are recording for the first time after the news of Star Trek Prodigy's removal from Paramount Plus, which, man, that, that one hurt. Uh, Lee, hopefully by the time you listen to this, maybe it'll be rectified. Lee, how did you break yours down? Yeah, it was one of those ones I kind of went with like tooting on face value at first and kind of going through all the relatives that have appeared. And then I started to kind of just start, sort of think, taking a step back and thinking, what actors have had a significant other, parent, a daughter, or, you know, a child, what have you, be involved in Star <laughs> Trek in some capacity? And it's one of those ones you, you, you kind of think about it a lot. There are regulars like say Roxanne Biggs Dawson who had Casey Biggs who was in yeah. it for significant periods of time you have someone like um his name just completely has escaped me right now but Leonard Nimoy's son directed a couple of episodes oh, of yeah, the next Adam. generation yeah. that's the one so you start thinking through that and then you're like right really need to narrow it down who has been the one and done you know even someone like uh, Michael Pillar's son Sean Pillar yeah. was re- was down for two episodes so it was a real, real effort, but I think I've got a really good solid five that cover the broad spectrum of definitely not nepotism involved in Star Trek. So looking forward to sharing my five. Oh my God, I love it. I just thought of one too that's, that uh, that applies to both of those. It would be, be like a real one uh, IRL kind of in real life and then also a one-off relative. Okay, this is fantastic. I love it. Uh, okay, so me, my prime director was a disaster. It was all over the place. I had... Thoughts of doing like different types of relatives, like five distinct types of uh, relatives. And then I thought, well, maybe I can narrow it and only do like siblings and parents. And then I was thinking like, well, what if they're not relatives, but they feel like relatives and they kind of talk about them as relatives. 
so I had, so I kind of ended up with a mix of all that. And I had some real obvious ones and a few deep cuts. And I just ended up kind of picking the ones that I feel like felt like covered the most ground and had some interesting actors and, and some deep cuts. So, and some heavy hitters. So it is all over the place. So it sounds like we're all kind of on three different tracks. So this is going to be fantastic. Let's do this third Ramonicon. Introduce us to the order of things. I am a Jem'Hadar. He is a Vorta. It is the order of things. Thank you, Third Ramonicon. As always, everyone will start with their five-word summary and a hashtag to tease their pick. Then we'll each reveal our top five one-off relative choices and the reasons we're highlighting it. And, of course, everyone will pick an episode to associate with that pick. And after getting through five rounds of picks, we'll get some secondary system selections from everyone. And remember, if you have any duplicates, make sure you listen for the Defiant Torpedoes. Okay, Debbie, we're going to start with you. What's your number five pick for your top five one-off relatives? Okay, and my number five pick in my track ranks tradition, I'm doing a little bit of a cheat here, but I'm going to get it out of the way first. My five words are, he's operating within established parameters, hashtag surrogate son. And my relative is Timothy from the TNG episode, Hero Worship. Oh, yeah. I've been going through it. I started a TNG rewatch before the third season of Picard, and I didn't get all the way through. And I've just been in season five. And I really, for the duration of this episode, like Data really falls into the parent role with this poor kid who's had a tragedy. And, uh, you know, people always complain that, oh, kids on Star Trek, they don't act very well. You know what? I think this kid was fantastic. I just think he was great. And also, um, Sir Patrick directed this episode. Oh, right. Huh. You were attempting to recreate the Dockeron Temple of Coral Hanish? Isn't it great? See, there's the big hallway the teacher told us about. And that's where everybody came in. That's where they stood, and that's where the altar was. What do you think? Do you wish a frank evaluation? It lacks the harmony that characterized this particular temple and the Dakaran culture in general. You hate it. No, I am not capable of hatred. Can't do anything right. You are making an unwarranted extrapolation. I was merely offering an aesthetic analysis of this particular model. The base appears quite sturdy. I just love Timothy. I love the head tilt. I love I love how he is trying to um, deal with his trauma and just takes on the Android persona and and data just like really, really helps him. I just love this kid. Yeah, I love this pick. This is I didn't think of this, and I I actually kind of like this episode. It's mid tier and TNG Trek ranks. I, I find it to be a little bit underrated, and I, I really like the the, the conclusion. Is fantastic when Timothy's on the bridge and he's like reciting kind of what how they're doing, making the same mistakes they were making on his other ship before it got destroyed. More power to the shields. More yeah, power he, to the shields. Yeah, I remember like them saying helps. that. Right. Yep. It, it was. Uh, I I just I thought that part was really good, and also. Also, yeah. the like the whole, like this kid for like the majority of the episode, you didn't know, but he carried with him that he thought it was his fault because his arm hit the computer panel. And that's like that. 
like that's tragic for that kid. He lost his actual parents, and then he thinks that he was responsible for the for the ship, you know, getting destroyed. It's and and Date is just amazing with him. He really is just amazing with him. Yeah, the kid he does a good job. Uh, Lee, what's your take on hero worship and Timothy? Yeah, it's an episode. It's always an episode I I think back on of like mini me to be honest. Where when I was a young kid, for some reason I found that tilt quite easy to do and for some reason i remember just being this kind of very geekish child every so often doing that data tilt that we would obviously see carried through in picard uh, as well and just being like god i am quite lame but i can't help but pretend to be data like he was a character that i admired he was right. knowledgeable he was interesting you know if you're a young kid he's someone that you can kind of relate to as you're trying to navigate your world your way through the world so yeah it's definitely an episode where i can definitely see a bit of myself in that character i must admit yeah i like the way you described that that's exactly why i think it's a little bit of a hidden gem it is, I, don't know, I, I, I like watching this episode it's good works for me i love it and it's a great deep cut pick for one-off relatives really smart okay lee what is your number five pick yeah, so my five words is Voyager to the Far East, hashtag Occupation Forgiven, so onwards. And it's Keegan Delancey who plays Q in yes. Q2 Voyager. So definitely one that blends the two. But yep. the reason I wanted to pick this one out is I don't particularly think it's the great a great episode by, by any stretch. I find the performance a bit mixed. But I, I was listening to, and it was brilliant timing, I was listening to an interview with him this week on the the Delta Flyers podcast, the podcast oh, uh, Robert McNeil does with um, Garrett Wang, and they came to review this episode, and then they had an interview at the end with with Keegan Delancey and uh, John Delancey, and it was it was about about forty five minutes just talking about the episode and, and life since, and it was something I kind of when you kind of follow Star Trek, you know, whether you watch an episode, dive into him to Memory Alpha afterwards. I remember years ago hearing about how he went on and worked in sort of the U.S. Foreign Service, you know the American State Department in um, the Middle East, Far East over the years. And, you know, didn't think much more of it than that. And um, it was really fascinating to kind of hear his story kind of articulated in this, this interview. And what I loved about it is that we often talk about for Star Trek fans, you know, how influenced a lot of us are perhaps in our career. And obviously it's undeniable the influence Star Trek has had on STEM, you know, and women in tech and women in space and everyone, you know, so many people that get involved in these things talk about how Star Trek's influenced them. He had a very similar approach where he was this child actor. He'd been in Ally McBeal. It was Rick Berman that maybe thought he would be quite a good pick for this role. John Delancey was worried about nepotism. I was like, I want nothing to do with the audition process. You know, you have to earn it by your your yeah. own um, spurs really here. And um, he kind of spoke about how that he went on one of these Star Trek cruises in, I think it was like near Istanbul or something like that. And he heard the Arabic language being used and he, he was really taken by that. And, you know, headed back home to Los Angeles after sort of this Star Trek cruise doing a bit of the convention circuit. And um, he started learning Arabic over, over kind of night in night schools. And obviously 9-11 happened and he found himself working out in sort of the, the Middle East, helping with sort of like Iraqi Christians seeking refuge and over the years he sort of started to build up um sort of his experience and now kind of works out in the sort of state department out in japan and sort of listening to kind of him and how just that single role in star trek got him on a cruise 
being able to hear that other language, that wow. curiosity that I think so many people go off and learn Klingon and other things. This was a person that was like, Star Trek was a gateway to to something else for him and a really fascinating story. And it's, it's important to remember, I suppose, that people that come through in Star Trek, I mean, there's thousands of guest actors, producers, directors over, over the years and the influence that even just one episode can have on someone's career and life, as we've seen over the years, huge. And I think he's one that we should, would certainly recognize and the work that he's doing, I think, really does embody the best of Star Trek. Maybe it was Klingon that he heard on the cruise and he thought it was there. I don't know. <laughs> Very true, <laughs> no, right? This is awesome. This is a great pick. I had no idea about any of that for uh, Keegan Delancey. I knew about the casting and kind of how he went. And I think you're right. Like he's he's really good in some parts of the episode, but he, it's not like a consistent performance all the way through. I didn't know he was on Ally McBeal before that. So that's that's cool that they that they maybe saw him there first. But fascinating that he went on to do all that in the State Department, and that's kind of his career now. I, I love this pick. Really good to not think of this one, but again, it fits kind of your Trek rank, your prime directive, but it also is quite appropriate for the topic. Okay, let's go on to my round five pick. This is my first time picking this episode, so I, it's been picked twice previously on Trek ranks. This is a heavy hitter. It was one of the first ones I thought of, and I just couldn't eliminate it from my list because i actually like this episode a lot five words and a hashtag no honor in this whatsoever hashtag the sign of roshenko and it is nikolai roshenko the great paul sorvino as Worf's brother in tng season seven episode homeward and i like this episode i think this episode works i think paul sorvino i mean he's definitely a little bit of an odd choice for Worf's brother and he's a Big time actor that wanted a role in TNG and they kind of slotted him in. But I like the energy he brings to the role. I think it's it's very much not a Paul Sorvino type role. He's super positive and optimistic and full of life. And he's got this kind of energy and I don't know, this can-do spirit with the with the Baralans. And I I like what just walking watching him make all these decisions to de- deceive the Enterprise crew and save everyone on on this planet. And I think it's, it's just a nice little prime directive episode. And, you know, he, he's got this line where he's like, you, you know, you may watch these people die, but I'm not going to do that. That's his response to the prime directive. So I wasn't going to let those people die just because your captain started quoting Federation dogma. I really like it. It's a, it's a season seven episode. It's like peak wharf. It's peak middle of the season seven uh, TNG family episodes where everyone basically gets a family episode. And I think it's pretty clever. So we got Worf the Seer, the Sign of the Forge, and uh, Paul Sorvino. So, Lee, what's your take on Paul Sorvino in this one? Yeah, you kind of nailed it for me. Like, season seven is such a, I think it was Ron Moore that talked about how like they were all exhausted. And it feels kind of soap opera kind of like season yep. seven. I mean, we get Picard and his potential son. We have, obviously, you mentioned Worf and his stepbrother here. We get the Troy family in this yep. one. We get LaForge. We get Data. We get Crusher. All get family members. Probably we could include Riker with almost a surrogate father in Pegasus. It's, it's definitely that weird season where you can tell that they're just exhausted and it's yep. like, right, let's get the family member in. It kind of goes that soap opera kind of route. But yeah, that's definitely an episode I feel like I haven't rewatched in in many, many years. It's never one of those ones that kind of comes out. I think even in this sort of 
tier of family episodes that that year i even find myself more inclined to watch sub rosa for obviously scottish <laughs> reasons but also just like oh it's God. such a guilty pleasure episode I, I introduced my partner to that one not too long ago so yeah there's there's definitely better episodes in season seven but again it kind of ties that theme together quite nicely of, of family and some of it found as well i love it debbie what's your take i don't like lee i don't watch this often but i'm a huge paul sorvino fan and and i just i also like how um you know they did the whole use the holodeck without their knowledge and then like that literally got used later in insurrection so (laughs) they basically hey that's a star trek staple reusing right tv ideas for the movies I mean, I think it works really well here. I just think they did oh, a I clever think it job did too. Yeah, and this, yeah, but this is a script by Naren Shankar, so one of his uh, early days scripts. So I, uh, I'm just a big Wharf guy. I, I like Nikolai Roshenko. Okay, let's go to round four. Debbie, what's your number four pick? Mm, my five words are coffee black. Make it yourself. Hashtag young Delancey nails son. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Q, there's Q Jr. Fire up the torpedoes. <laughs> Make it yourself. So, um, Lee, you literally said like everything I was going to say because I, I too listened to that interview on the Delta Flyers. I really like that podcast. I really have enjoyed it because it's really cool to hear Robbie and Garrett kind of talk about all the episodes from their perspective. And like they talked about, like, as because I guess, you know, they have the memories, um, how much they really liked working with, like, that it was John Delancey's son and this, that, and the other thing. They talked about a couple of the things that they thought were cringy in the episode. But, um, you know, they both rated it really high and like they also um, take an average of some of their higher Patreon people who kind of didn't rate it as high, but they both really, really enjoyed the episode. So I do like the Delta Flyers because especially Robbie McNeil has really developed a new, a renewed love for the series where I don't think that he was I mean, he self-admits that after he was done, he was kind of like, all right, Star Trek, I'm done with that. And now he's kind of into it. The other piece is that LeVar Burton directed that episode. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's another yeah. one. This is, uh, we got three really good mid-tier episodes on this episode, on this show so far. Hero Worship, Homeward, and Q2. So, it's like, uh, all right, any final, by the way, Delta, the Delta Flyers podcast is great. Any final thoughts, Lee, on Keegan Delancey? No, I, th- I think that that kind of sums up everything. I think it's it's always interesting when you think back of like, you wonder what it must be like of like, see if, I mean, you're a perfect example of this. It's a shame you don't have, your character didn't have a relative in Star Trek. Whereas like, what must it be like when you go on and you have a career, you travel the world, you do these things and you can say like, oh, by the way, I was in one episode of, of Star Trek. Would you have that as like a dating profile prompt? Would that be your icebreaker? Would it be someone in the office going, yeah, I'm going to catch the new Star Trek episode. Uh, I'm not too fast. Oh, did, did you know my dad's cue? Did you know I was in an episode? And you know what, what that must be like, it's, it must be such a unique position to have had a career and a life separate to this one thing that you did all the way back 
in like 2000. I, I can't imagine what that's like, Jim. I mean, imagine saying, but imagine for Keegan saying, my dad's Q. I mean, holy crap. And I was too. Yeah. Or maybe you could start a Twitter account and call it Enterprise Extra. <laughs> and then it's gone. Goodbye. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Lee. What's your number four pick? Yeah, so this is my most tenuous one, but one I thought ah, this is going to get cut for something else, but I think it's one that I really want to include, right. and that is hashtag what we leave behind, five-word summary, meet the producer, Patrick Stewart, and that's Sandra Pillar and Star Trek Insurrection. So oh, yeah. the reason that I want to give Sandra Pillar a shout-out, so obviously Sean Pillar, her, her son, yep. contributed towards two episodes, but she's really kind of championed this book that really kind of for, for people that maybe weren't familiar with it, it's one of the greatest ever insights into how you make Star Trek and it's completely unfiltered. If someone ever described a document as bringing all the receipts, this is it. Like what's it like to be offered a Star Trek movie to write a script to then pitch it to producers. What's it like to work with the talent? How does a film come out in the wash? Like for some, Star Trek Insurrection is one of their favorite films. For some, it's a middling one. For some, it's maybe one of their worst. But what I love about this film is what I find out from that book. And it's a real kind of holy grail. I mean, for years, it was one of these things that was just basically a glorified PDF that was just kicking around on any sort of website. You know, you would kind of mention, oh, have you ever read Fade In? And God, what was Patrick Stewart like as, as a producer? And God, I mean, how great could have Insurrection have been? Almost one of those great what-if Star Treks, for, for example. And I think one of those things that Michael Pillar has left behind an incredible legacy and in Star Trek, just in terms of the episode, but, you know, his involvement, the writers that he brought through, I mean, he would be a Mount Rushmore potential face in, in my Star Trek world, but this document and this book that you can see why Paramount didn't want it published, it's quite, quite harsh on Paramount. It's very harsh, perhaps on, on Patrick Stewart. And I know, I think it was actually on one of the, the most recent track ranks where some of the hot mess elements of Picard, you could probably put on Patrick Stewart, the producer who he maybe doesn't get Picard as well as other people do. And it's just a great insight into how Star Trek is, is made. And the book is out there in sort of like kind of unofficial version. But I mean, Sandra Pillar has been, been championing this, you know, made, got it to be published, got it to be this book. And despite the fact that it's a kind of unofficial book, you know, the Star Trek.com website interviewed Sandra Pillar. She could talk about the book and sort of the experience. And, you know, obviously Michael Pillar died not long after this. And, you know, if for leaving behind something that people can take and learn from dealing with large film corporations, talent, etc., how to write a film and what are the amount of compromises that you need to go through. It truly is one of those, those holy Bibles. And I think Sandra Pillar deserves a lot of credit for keeping her husband's legacy alive in so many ways, because it truly can be inspiring for, for a new generation of, of writers. I love it. That's a great way to shout out Michael Pillar with Sandra Pillar, also the mother of Sean Pillar, like you said, I have this book. I haven't read it. I really need to read it. <laughs> so it's faded. I was going to say, I need to book. get it. Yeah, the name of the book is Fade In. It's pretty, I think it's self published by her. Yeah. Um, There's and, also a PDF still kicking around on yeah. the, the website, it contains like the original script and everything. But yeah, it's, it's, a dense it's book. quite an expensive book. It's 
it's, it's officially one of those maybe sort of like educational textbooks, but it's called Fade In, The Making of Star Trek Insurrection. And, and by yeah, the, tru- truly fascinating. And by the way, I think pretty sure that was uh, Alex on Alex Perry on Weekly Trek talking about. That's the one. Yes. Some of Picard, some of Patrick Stewart's choices were kind of highlighted in that in that book is like, oh, well, maybe that's didn't actually work out too well. Debbie, any thoughts on Sandra Pillar, Star Trek Insurrection? Uh, I, I, this is a great deep cut to highlight Michael Pillar's work, too. I I love Insurrection. Um, my I haven't read it. I my feedback is I'm frantically searching the internet right now. So yeah, here we it's go. Out there. It's out there. All right. I will close out round four. This is a deep cut. It's another one I'm picking for the first time. It was picked once before in our Enterprise Guilty Pleasure episodes by Heather Kirby. Five words and a hashtag. From Warp 5 to Transporters. Hashtag like a father to me. And this one is Enterprise Season 4 Dataless. And I am picking Emery Erickson, who's like a second father to Jonathan Archer. Because I definitely thought about picking Henry Archer as a pick. But then as I was researching, I was just like, he's just too prevalent, right? He's only really appeared in... A broken bow, the one episode, but his name is just dropped all the time, and he's always part of the series. Well, then it hit me, and to, just to go one deeper, and instead of picking the father of the warp engine, I'll pick the father of the transporter, which qualifies him alone. That could have been another way to do a prime directive. Right? Now that I think about it, like the father of the transporter, <laughs> but Jonathan Archer, you know, d- grew up with him and described him as a second father to him. I didn't know that the manifestations would be dangerous. Believe me. You want me to believe you? I want you to help me. Quinn looks like a brother to you. You were like my second father. You should have trusted me. Daedalus, you know, not a popular or great episode by any stretch. There's a lot of cool themes in it, and it's there's some interesting stuff going on, but just doesn't all quite come together. But I do love the great actor Bill Cobbs, who plays Emery Erickson here. He was in been in a million things through the years he he uh passed uh, a year or two ago house of cards he was an all fly away and of course he's in a wheelchair in this role and really serving this kind of richard daystrom role as a young phenom who invented the transporter but hasn't really followed it up with anything and he's trying to uh reclaim he's trying to get his son saved from subspace while lying to everybody about this new transporter in the works anyway great character interesting actor and none of it really works all the way through but i like the relationship with archer and archer's father debbie what's your take on emory erickson and daedalus i definitely agree that especially coming off of some of the episodes that right. were prior to it it was kind of a letdown but i like i always like the like the history of that's one of the things i like about enterprise is like how they wind in the history of certain things that are now commonplace in our part of the universe. So yeah, I get, yeah, I get that the yeah. episode was kind of disappointing, but I still kind of like it. Yep. Any hot takes on Emery Erickson Lee? No, it's, it's one of those ones. I, I remembered at the time sort of like Manny Koto kind of talking about season four and it's like, and we're going to learn who invented the transport. And you're like, right. Yeah. I'm in with that because like, it kind of felt like, you know, it was a, a unique way to kind of, kind of do that and it felt like this was someone that was like embracing that prequel concept you know we kind of got in those early episodes 
here's the phasers, here's the tractor beams, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but this was one that I think everyone was like, if you're going to do a prequel series, let's find out about the kind of the transport. And while the story might feel a bit kind of, we've been there, done that before, I think in kind of next generation, it, it was still very interesting. And, and, you know, it's one of those ones, I think it's so much of the things that we see invented in Star Trek and that have been created and designed are often by white male scientists. And I think it was nice to have some representation in this as well of sort of black people involved in sort of Starfleet and science and, and creation as well. And there was a nice little bit of representation in that kind of, again, sort of what, what are the fundamentals that we associate with Star Trek? And I think that was a nice bit there. Yeah, it's a, it's such a good idea for an episode, but it, it really didn't end up being about that really in any way. It's kind of a mishmash of horror and kind of a, a little bit of a, a thriller. So, okay, let's go to the soup round, round three. Deb, what's your number three pick? I think I can handle some soup. Round three, let's see. Um, five words, dreaming about starships and adventures. Oh. Hashtag Picard's uncle. And it is Renee Picard from TNG season four, episode two, Family. I love it. Um, I love Renee. I love how he sneaks up. I love how the little uncle nephew thing goes throughout the episode. Oh, good Lord. A highwayman. A what? Highwayman. It's a robber who attacks travelers, but none have been reported in this vicinity for centuries. But I'm not a robber. Oh. I'm much relieved, sir. I know who you are. Then you have the advantage. You're my nephew, Jean-Luc, from the Starship Enterprise. Then you must be my uncle, René. I'm not your uncle. It's the other way around. Too bad. I rather enjoyed the idea. I love how this episode really closes out Best of Both Worlds, and it never ceases to amaze me that Gene Roddenberry highly objected to this episode. He didn't like it. He didn't want it made. He didn't think it was Star Trek. And like it really started to get like he was getting to the point where that's where Berman and company was like, okay, he just needs to go. I mean, at that point he was, yeah, he he didn't survive much, much longer longer after after that. that. Yeah. So they, like I, from what you read that, you know, he was kind of cut out more and more, but I just, I love Renee. I mean, he got referenced again, but he didn't actually appear again. So he was a one-off and I just love the kid. And I love how, despite his father's objections to like kind of everything that his brother represents at the end when he's out there under the tree with the shooting star and they and they just say let him stay let him let him stay out there let him have his dreams yeah so and this is i i eliminated this one from my list just because of kind of the murkiness of the nexus scenes and all the generation stuff around renee picard as well this is so sad him dying you know off camera is kind of like a plot propulsion device um because he was such a great character he was so strong in family but was one of the kids like his nephew along with his kid i think or no there's maybe it was photos it was the photos he appeared in the photo book that's what it was but it wasn't for him it was some and other of course, actor and, well, so it didn't the, look and, like him. well in the, uh, the uh, and he the actor played 
Picard Young in yeah. Rascals. Right. Yeah, of course. No, yeah. I think I think all the kids were supposed to be Picard's kids plus like his nephews, right? Or like his I, I don't know, and their cousins. Well, whatever, I got, whatever. Well, I got to the place where because when I when I was generating my list, and you'll see on yeah. secondary systems, I kind of had some people on my list that were from like alternate timelines or something like that. And I was like, no, we're going to go with like real. All right. There you go. It's like, well, listen, it's a great one off pick. Uh, The family's just undeniably great. Lee, what's your take on Rene Picard? Yeah, it's one of those ones. I mean, I had his uh, had his killer fire as uh, my top in my top five movie villains uh, for a generation. So uh, justice for Rene Picard. But I remembered when I was originally thinking about this, and I was thinking at face value, and I was one of my potential choices was going to be. Uh, obviously David Tristan uh, Birkin as obviously the younger Picard when his father was going to be Captain Riker and stuff oh, like right. that. There so you go. I, there's almost, you can have him as a double for, for I don't know if they'll let me Jean-Luc, but I will ask. Thanks. Number one. He's my number one dad. Oh, I love it. Okay. Perfection. Lee, what's your super round pick? Yeah, so my five words are fairy godmother, no, Freaks' godmother, hashtag no books in the 22nd century, and it's Alfre Woodard in Star Trek First Contact. So um, so for those that aren't familiar, uh, Jonathan Freaks' godmother is Alfre Woodard. So um, it kind of all came around that um, kind of you know, they knew each other prior to, to first count contact and, you know, classic, probably working away on sets, you know, not much to do. And kind of freaks mentioned that he's never had a, a godmother and Woodard decided to be his godmother. And ever since then, freaks has referred to her as his god mummy. Um, I think you hear it kind of dropped over the years. I used to think like, really, like she, doesn't seem that much older than freaks. Like, was this, how did this all come around and classic internet, you know, not necessarily around in the nineties to find that sort of stuff out. But I mean, for, for me, Lily is one of the, the greatest audience point of view characters ever. And it's one of those ones when I kind of think about her performance, we get the classic trope that we see sometimes people awed and wowed by the, the future it can be scary, it's terrifying, and being able to kind of talk about how wonderful and progressive things are. How many planets are in this Federation? Over 150, spread across 8,000 light years. Must not get home much. Actually, I tend to think of this ship as home. But if it's Earth you're talking about, I try to get back whenever I can. Good, they haven't broken the encryption codes yet. Who, those bionic zombies you told me about? The Borg. Borg? Sounds Swedish. She brings something that I often think some of the best outsiders do, and that should be to challenge. And obviously, I think we all remember the the conference room scene, which I think is one of the greatest Star Trek scenes of all time. I mean, just the venom, the the anger, and and the showdown, and and those. I mean, that's two actors pushing each other to to their absolute best. And I think it's the best example of an outsider coming into to that world and so on, and just the great line about sort of like you know ahab you know this is you know you're this character you know how you know can you see that and so on and then you know obviously this things diffuse picard quoting the book and her mentioning i've never read it 
and the amount of times I'm sure for many people we've been we we know the gist of a book, a story, a parable, a message. We yeah. kind of mention it, and it's like, oh, have you ever read the book? No, but I know, I know enough about it to kind of just drop it into conversation. Teach and, you a lesson. Exactly. Yes, cultural, well, just, cultural literacy. <laughs> One of the greatest kind of characters of all time and one of those ones that I always think it's a bit disappointing, you know, maybe an enterprise a bit that we never heard more about what Lily got up to, what was her role and so on. I mean, one of the most instrumental people in those, um, you know, bringing around this Star Trek that we all all know and love and so on. And yeah, I think her story deserves, there's more to be told with with this character, but I love that we just get this little insight and, and Alfred Woodard just truly, truly a, a great, great performance. Incredible. I, I mean, my takeaway from this pick is that Lily should not be a one-off character. That's that's my takeaway, which we all agree with. She's an amazing, amazing character. So I love this. Okay, I do remember that godmother story. They're like the same age though. So yeah. I that so uh I, I'm glad you kind of clarified that because I remember hearing that but never thinking about it. And now it's like, oh of course that's it had to be something like that, which makes perfect sense. I love your creative use of your prime directive Debbie, what's your take on Alfre Woodard and her one-off appearance in First Contact? Lee, you are the master of deep cuts. Um, <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, I love Alfre Woodard in First Contact, not only to Picard, but she also, to me, like she she tempers um, Zephram Cochran out too, you know, like you got to remember, like she that was his right-hand person in the whole development of the warp drive and everything. So she's not she's a fantastic character and it's one of those ones i think she becomes a bit more what the tropes that we see with her in that film like in picard so many people love to hear this guy look through him maybe kind of don't think he's all this big legend i mean i just kind of think about some of the the kind of scenes where like he's just shot down ensign lynch and she just kind of looks at him just kind of like he's serious like just when he goes oh this was ensign lynch oh too bad yeah and it's just like this guy that we've built up that's the best of us all and so on and she's just looking at him going really you've you've just killed this guy you know in complete anger and aggression and he's one of your guys she sees through things in in ways that you know i think we see more of in in picard her her legacy continues in in that respect i think well i think she holds picard up to us because you know because like we're like of course of course he just got rid of lynch he had to and her perspective on it it really like is grounding you know yeah exactly i i love this pick great job all right let's close out round three this is okay so i picked this one on another one-off episode like it was a while ago though it was like uh maybe 30 or 40 episodes ago, but I have to do it again with a little bit of a spin. Five words and a hashtag. Wild girl of the woods, hashtag sister, daughter, granddaughter. And it is Kestra, of course, the daughter of Waxana Troy, but also the daughter of Deanna Troy. So we have kind of a double Kestra choice for Dark Page and Nepenthe from TNG and Picard. So two years ago, I picked Kirsten Dunst as my one of my one-off guest stars. She played Hedril uh, in that episode, but was also the de facto stand-in for Kestra, who was played by a young actress. and But she was also played by Dunst in the visions that Loxana was having. So I love Dark Page. I think it's super underrated. I love the, re- the reveal of Kestra as the older sister of Deanna. 
But that's kind of the the base of my pick. My real pick, of course, is the one time we got to see the incredible Kestra Troy Riker, daughter of Will and Deanna, granddaughter of Loxana, and sister of Thaddeus, played by Lulu Wilson. Incredible performance, incredible episode. It's it's a bummer that we had this amazing Picard season that was all about parents and their kids and what we give them and leave them, and we couldn't fit in Kestra in that, which is a bummer. But, uh, yeah, so one-time appearance from Nepenthe, and I still say Kestra's deconstruction of Data is one of my favorite things in Star Trek and certainly in uh, that series and and New Trek that he could do all these amazing things. But in the end, he just wanted to play the violin and learn to ballroom dance. Kestra, Troy Riker, Debbie, what's your take? I, um, uh, the, when in Picard season three, in that moment, when, um, when Riker had been captured and they, I had that, you know, that split second of like, is it going to be both of them when it was Deanna in the cell? I was like, please let it be both of them. And I was like, darn, because I, I love, love, love this character. I, I wish we had seen her again. I wish that wasn't, I wish she wasn't qualified to be in this topic right exactly uh lee what's your take on kestra well when star trek legacy comes along this will make this choice redundant (laughs) because i'm sure we're about to see her again but it's one of those ones it has to be given a shout out i mean it's it's such brilliant child acting and i love just sort of as she just kind of looks up to you know she's like oh my god i'm eating data's dark and can you bend steel and it's like it's that childhood innocence of like oh you know physical strength and and interest in that and you know again just such a lovely kind of performance and so on and a really richly brought to life child that's not annoying not kind of falling into some of the tropes that we expect with sort of star trek children and so on A, a real a real lovely performance and a credit to the actor well said. That's exactly what she pulled off. Just an incredible performance. Okay, round two. Let's do it. Debbie, what do you got? My five words are thank you for my life. Hashtag I will feel it for the both of us. And I could not have a list without Lol from oh, TNG season three, episode 16, The Offspring. Um, what can I say? Data creating his daughter every every bit of that episode from there were things that were so poignant there were things that were funny with her with the trying to catch the ball and the arm going up later and going after Riker in the um in 10 forward which by the way Frakes (laughs) it was his first time directing yeah it was his first directing and uh it, it just is incredible. And then just kind of like the side note too, that there was something about um, when they were in 10 forward and law was asking about um, when she sees the two crew people kissing or whatever. And um, Whoopi Goldberg petitioned for, it was supposed to be, well, when a man loves a woman and Whoopi petitioned for the line change to be when two people even. So it, oh, I just right. love, yeah, I just love the, um, the inclusivity and like that's all, all over the place. I love how she was referenced in Picard that in like that she was in there along with B4 and lore in that, data thing like that law was in there as well i just love her that's all and 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 they had that great 
opening with lol where they are picking their own gender right yes so, um, yep. klingon male and dorian lol. female human male i think were the, were the other ones i am unable to correct the system failure i know you must say goodbye now i feel what do you feel lol I love you, Father. If we didn't have an assume-type uh, android on this list, something was definitely going wrong, especially with uh, with Law, who was high on my list. So I'm really glad you picked her. I wish I could feel it with you. I will feel it for both of us. Thank you for my life. Flirting. Laughter. Painting family. Female. Human. She appears twice because I did look it up. She appeared in, in, in Inheritance as a painting that Data was looking at. And then she's on uh, Mariner's Conspiracy Wall in uh, Cupid's Aaron Arrow. Although as, oh, the, God. as the android, as the android law <laughs> before... Before they picked their gender, so their gender, amazing. Thank you for my life. Law is all time great. Trek, Jonathan Frakes, written by Renee Echeverry. I love it. Uh, Lee, what's your take on the, the Offspring? It's a, be- a beautiful episode, and I love how that carries through. I mean, Next Generation could be a bit hit or miss when it came to to continuity, but I remember just sitting there kind of watching Star Trek Picard episode one for the first time, and I was lucky enough to see it in a cinema. And just that moment where I can't, I think it was like, I think it was Picard that said it, like Data wanted a, a daughter and, and so on. And, you know, for, for many people that may be coming into Picard, new okay sure someone can have those dreams and ambitions but for those of us that were were there almost i guess 20 years earlier in 1990 it was one of those ones that just felt all the more richer and they didn't need to say lol's name but we we knew as audiences and that really struck a chord yeah that was really well done at the start of the card series okay fantastic choice we can check that one off the list uh lee what's your number two pick so my number two pick is hashtag Alexander Delarge and Sedig. Five words, they, it's a Delmore Schwartz poem. And that is Malcolm McDowell as Soren in Star Trek Generations. <laughs> so McDowell, Man. for those not familiar, is the maternal uncle of Alexander Sedig. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those ones I'm almost just thinking of, of that one scene again and a, a confrontation with Picard. And I think it's one of those ones where, yeah, Generations can be a bit of a mixed bag of a, a movie. But I think we can all agree that one of the, the highlights is Malcolm McDowell um, and John A. Alonzo's cinematography. And it's one of those ones that I think I... I think when I think of Generations, it's it's probably my second favourite of the, the Next Generation movies because... It's like, here's the first big screen adventure of the next generation crew. What are we going to do? Okay, there's all this stuff kind of going on with the crossovers and Klingon battles and Picard and that. But it's like fundamentally that they were bold enough to go, we're going to kill Picard's family and we're going to have him in really dis- uh, disabling grief. And it's interesting when you, in the beginning, we we know there's been some, something's happened to Picard. He's received some kind of news. Picard, Riker picks up on it. 
that he he can't get it out of him. And we get this wonderful scene in this lovely bustling 10 forward which just looks incredible with johnny alonzo cinematography of the the kind of the the sun coming in from the amagosa star just really bringing this kind of quite tired set to, to life that's never looked so good really and it's interesting to kind of watch the performance in in action you know just mcdowell was like hello captain how are you just really nice cordial um and it's just kind of that and you know he's wanting to get back to his observatory it's not getting his way and just this moment where picard is just he's had enough for the day he doesn't want to be doing this and he just grabs him by the arm and that like iconic line which comes from the the schwartz's poem they say time is the fire in which we burn which i feel so many star trek fans have used any way but way to describe life since 1994 and what i love in, in that moment we forget, we always think about that menacing line but it's how he kind of has this intense stare and his voice becomes quiet and it's now it's like right now my time is running out we live we leave so many things unfinished in our life i know you understand and such a soft and gentle voice and you're like what is going on here the first time? Like, what is he trying to say and, and get at? And he has this intense stare. And, you know, this captain has already kind of been bent to his will. And it's such an interesting way that we see it with, like, kind of mind readers, telepaths in Star Trek that, oh, wow, um, you know, they can tell someone's being negative and aggressive. But just the way he uses this manipulates them. It's not just, like, kind of a great great use from our villain but it's just a fantastic use of acting as well just intense to soft and how he gets his ways and then Picard goes away looks his watch and like check me I'm cock of the walk and he's about to go out and then he notices Guinan <laughs> and it's just it's just such a great moment and it's one that shows that generations you can go back into you watch that for the first time you don't really know what's going on there how does this person know this what's happened the 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 mention of fire and burning and life running out and then when you watch it on repeat you're like the telepath knew that he had lost his family and he's using that as a bargaining chip to get what he wants it's it's a brilliant role from alexander sadig's uh <laughs> paternal uncle it is an absolutely brilliant role i mean listen it's malcolm mcdowell the guy is an all-time cinema legend from you know clockwork wars to Time after time and a million other Time films. after time, God, I was he's say, just, love he's that just Nicholas Meyer as well. I mean, yeah, that, Nicholas Meyer. Yep. I can't, I, you know, every time I hear this, I like, it's like I'm hearing it for the first time. I'm a little bit like stunned, like, holy shit. <laughs> Alexander Siddig's uncle is Malcolm McDowell. That just blows did my you mind. You know, I mean, I I think it's something I remember. I thought that was like Malcolm McDowell. I think he had, he didn't have the greatest experience on Generations. He was like, I would love to be on Deep Space Nine, but I need I need my uncle, sorry, my nephew, to be the right. one to direct me in it. And it just never right. came around because, like, you you get people that come into Star Trek and we see them. Yeah. In, but the guy who killed Captain Kirk, he's always going to be the guy that killed Captain Kirk. If you get, yeah. so you have to do the makeup. <laughs> so it never came around. But it would be interesting. I can imagine him being a good character in the Dominion War. And he is. Oh yeah. He's just. Uh, he's just so good. Doesn't matter what the role is. The guy elevates everything. And he did that with Soren, who's a pretty good character, right? But, uh, but you know the whole captain on the bridge, bridge on the captain. Thing. <laughs> it's like that's a real thing. But it Malcolm McDowell kind of supersedes all that as Soren. He's just a really great underrated villain. And I love this. Any quick take, Deb? Lee has, has said it all, basically. Uh, I'm a little bit of a generations apologist. Uh, you know, I've 
it's Star Trek. I love it. You know, you already had the Renee Picard pick too. So, right there we go. <laughs> okay, let's. Oh, it's my pick. Close out round two. All right, I'm really gonna get real on this one. I I I like this pick. I don't think I've ever really talked about this person or a character on Trek ranks, but I've got a real affinity. And I, I guess it's a compassion and empathy for this character. I really, I, I actually really like this character, and he he moves me in a way that I think it's probably not the same for other people. So five words and a hashtag. He broke all the rules. Hashtag as the father of jewels. There we go, Julian Bashir. It is Richard Bashir, played by Brian George, Julian Bashir's father from Doctor Bashir, I presume. And I'm not going to punch down on Julian's father, who is really set up in this episode to be, you know, like basically a loser, right? He's kind of the guy who has these big dreams and ambitions, but none of it's really ever come together for him. And he's kind of struggling to find his place. And deep down, he's a character that knows he really hasn't done anything or been successful, but he still talks a big game and tries to fool himself and you know and kind of get past his own insecurities but but deep down he knows it's <laughs> he's fooling himself and it's not it doesn't really work and i'll say the people around him certainly know it doesn't work right they're they look at him like what this guy is just a blowhard but i have a lot of empathy for people like this i mean i don't i don't love the insecurity and the fooling yourself part but i do appreciate that you know, not everyone is out there hitting home runs all the time, right? Or even getting up to bat because a lot of times things don't have anything to do with your ability, just comes down to luck or timing or whatever. And I think uh, Richard Bashir as Julian's father here, I, I when I think about him, I think about that kind of hard work adage that leads to success and all that, which I just think is absolute bullshit. Of course, hard work helps and you can be successful because you work hard but there's no magic elixir you can work hard your whole life without timing and a little bit of luck and uh, a lot of other factors maybe you just don't hit and maybe you just end up you know working a bunch of odd jobs your whole life so there's nothing wrong with that so i just think i just think he's a really interesting character and I know that's, I, I feel like he's that kind of guy that just got a good heart, worked hard, tried to provide for his family. The you, the genetic manipulation of Julian aside, which is obviously a choice, but uh, I don't know. I just think he's an interesting in-depth character. And I I see him that way, not really as kind of the butt of the joke or as the, the loser, the third-class steward. And uh, Brian George is a great actor, great character actor. He's been in a million things over the years. I uh, love it. So, Lee, what's your take on Richard Bashir? Yeah, he's a lovely man, isn't he? I mean, it's the classic thing. You, you know, whatever generation of parents, they always want their son, daughter, or child to have what they didn't have. And, you know, the world I work in, I often have seen, you know, young kids that have faced 
barriers with learning and, and struggled socially and with life. And, you know, you see it for parents, the, the struggle, because they wanted their, their son or daughter to have the best fighting chance to succeed in a world which is always tough. And if you don't have that best start in life, unfortunately for a lot of people, it can be a, a struggle and there, there can be a real lack of equality and so on. And, you know, I think anyone watches that episode, you can debate the rights or wrong, but he did what he felt was best for his son. And I always think it's one of the most kind of noble sacrifices at the end where, you know what, the man's full of it a little bit, but when it really mattered, he goes, you know what, I'll I'll sit some time in jail. And I bet he was a great person to have in in jail alongside. (laughs) I bet he learned so much and stuff. And I I always like my head cannon is the Dominion War kind of kicked off a few months later and they probably just let him out nice and early anyway. So it (laughs) probably was probably there for no time at all. Good stuff. Working on his landscape architecture. Um, (laughs) Deb, what's your take on Julian Bashir's father? Well, isn't this the type of person who kind of has just been the, you know, never really hitting, so wants more for his own son? Like, you know, like he he justifies what he did because of, you know, he wanted more for his kid. Um, The other thing that I, it's funny because after last week's Strange New Worlds at, at Astro Per Aspera, he it, he got brought up again because, you know, like, oh, yeah. it's really- because it's because the case was literally just on Una and it didn't make policy. And, the, and it was even cited that it was how many years, hundreds of years later that um, it was still an issue with Julian and his father, you know, took the took the hit for him by doing the jail time for him. So his son didn't have to sacrifice his career. Yeah. It's really an of the moment pick with that, uh, ad Astra Perispera as well, for sure. Yep. I just, the scene that hits me so hard is when he's in his mode of kind of like talking it up and talking himself up in this kind of blowhard way. And Julie's just like, dad, no one's around. It's just me. I know you weren't <laughs> running this shuttle. You were a third, you were like the class, the third class steward. You weren't the freaking captain. Captain Sisko seems like a very nice man, Jules. Not like the captain of the transport that brought us here. I've never met a ruder, or abrasive man in my life. I tell you, when I used to run shuttles, I never would have tolerated that kind of behavior towards my passengers. Dad, you're talking to me now. You were a third class steward for all of six months. That's right. And I was required to have daily contact with the passengers. And you can bet that if I even looked at them the wrong way, I would have been discharged on the spot. I thought you were. No, I resigned. Uh, it's so sad. It's it's hard to watch, but uh, but I have a lot of empathy for him. Okay, let's go to round one. Begin round one. Debbie, what's your number one pick? Break out the torpedoes, if you will. Thank you. Cancel red alert. Burnt tomato. Hashtag bunny corn sausage huntress. Oh, and that's Kestra awesome. Troy Riker from the Picard Nepenthe. I love this kid. I just love this kid. She is she, she is so much empathy. She's she just is, you know, she is holding the the little crossbow on them, but then says, Oh, I never would have shot you. I'm a pacifist. And she is has the childlike fascination over Soji and in the same way, like 
also helps her because Soji's in this kind of crisis thing because she's just figured out that she's not who she thinks she is. And I think in large part due to Kestra, she starts to like begin to trust again and all that type of stuff. And then I can't even, you know, she's the one at the end who breaks out her little thing. Old Captain Crandall, who they think is a nothing, is the one who identified where they need to go. And it's Kestra who, you know, she's under the table texting them, you know, and, and he comes up with what they need. I love Kestra. I wish we had seen her again. Yeah, she's amazing all the way through. Lulu Wilson, just incredible performance. And she, I mean, yeah, what else can you say? There is, I'll probably drop a soundbite here of something she says. It's fantastic. Sure. All the, <laughs> the languages, everything. So I just good. love it. You know a lot about Data. My parents served with him in Starfleet until he died a long time ago on a ship called the Enterprise. Picard was the captain. My dad said he was the greatest Starfleet captain. Ever. It seems weird to make an android with mucus and saliva, but I guess Data would do it like that. I don't see how Data could be my father. I mean, if I was made, it was probably about three years ago. Wait, why would Data want to make an android with mucus and saliva? Well, he was always trying to be more human. He could do all these these amazing things, but all he ever really wanted to do was, like, have dreams and tell jokes and, like, learn how to ballroom dance. So good. Lee, any final take on Kestra Troy Riker? I'm, I, I feel, see, if we didn't have COVID, I reckon that would have been a really popular um, cosplay at conventions. I reckon people going around in sort of the Kestra of the Woods style look and so right. on. I feel like COVID has robbed us of that. It's a, I mean, it's a cosplay waiting. I don't think I've seen it. Somebody must have done it, but uh don't feel like I've seen it. Okay, Lee, who is your number one pick? Yeah, so my five words and a hashtag are five words, a tizzy, but it's fine, and hashtag father, son, and the holy score. And that's Joel Goldsmith, who helped uh, score Star Trek First Contact alongside okay. his father, Jerry. So um, I suppose I know for yourself, um, you'll probably be quite familiar with Joel Goldsmith, was the big composer behind Stargate SG-1 yes. and Stargate um, Atlantis. Um, but for, for many, I think, when we always think about Star Trek scores, for me, probably First Contact is is my favorite. And that beautiful kind of score, the majestic swelling, it, it, we do associate that with, with Jerry Goldsmith. But such as life, you know, it was a, a difficult one for, for Jerry Goldsmith to take on the full role of that film at the, the time. And then um, Brakes and Berman approached Jerry Goldsmith, their number one target. And he was like, yeah, I want to do this. But I'm quite busy at the moment with, I think it was the ghost in the darkness and couldn't really commit to doing all of it. But he was like, what I want to do, I want to get my son involved in, in this Joel Goldsmith. And I think the, the quote is that um, we paid for Jerry Goldsmith and the studio had a whole tizzy about it was Jonathan Frakes's his comment when they first heard that. And um what happened was that sort of they did a kind of classic switcheroo where um, 
Frakes and Berman turned up to Jerry Goldsmith's studio to like hear the way the score was was coming so far. And you know, Jerry Goldsmith senior, you know, starts playing some of the score. And what he plays is that you know that nightmare sequence at the beginning as Picard is being kind of assimilated into the Borg, those flashbacks, that kind of really industrial, grim, heavy, clanging sounds. And they were like, wow, really good stuff, Jerry. And he was like, got you. That was Joel. And they were really <laughs> kind of happy with that because uh, Goldsmith kind of senior was like, I'm really interested in doing this big majestic theme and such like, but I'm not really interested in this, the action-y stuff or the, you know, the battles and so on. So really pretty much Joel Goldsmith does nearly most of that kind of score as well. You know, that fantastic battle sequence at the beginning as the, the starships are fighting, we hear the Klingon theme swell. It's, 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 that's all Joel Goldsmith, you know, that four note theme of the Borg, the, dun, dun, mm. dun, you know, that's him. And it's, it's interesting because you would listen to that. And if you're a fan of Jerry Goldsmith's work, you would go, oh, I'm, I'm recognizing bits of alien there, that element. And it's one of those ones you can tell that he's someone that really studied underneath his father, that he could make a score that would fit with what Jerry Goldsmith would have produced if he had been given that full time to, to make the score and so on. And, you know, a brilliant soundtrack and so on. And it's it's an, a person that, unfortunately, much like Michael Piller, uh, Joel Goldsmith died far too young and um, he died of cancer in 2012 and um, no age at all and um, but someone that despite having probably one of the most famous uh, composer fathers in the world made a career really of his, his own and so on and brilliant episode you know did nearly every episode of stargate and you know some of that is such fantastic work as well and someone that we need to, to put a bit of respect on when we talk about one of the best scores in star trek history it absolutely is. I, I so I knew he worked on it. I've never really known kind of which pieces. So I appreciate that little bit of a snapshot of that because I, I don't think I ever knew the difference there. So he did that Klingon op- that op- opening action sequence with the Klingon. Yeah, a lot of the Borg yeah, action sequences. Stuff, yeah, Anything that's, that's not majestic and swelling. Right, right. That's, that's, that's the that's one really to keep cool. in mind. And I'll say you mentioned the star. I'm on my I'm doing my first ever kind of Stargate watch right now. And his themes for Stargate and Stargate Atlantis are both phenomenal. He does a really good job. The music all across the board. Definitely something I've been noticing as I wind to a close in the third season of Stargate Atlantis right now. So, uh, Deb, any take on Joel Goldsmith and his work on First Contact? Fascinating info, Lee, and Carl's going to love that pick. Yeah, he is. <laughs> He's absolutely going to love that pick. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. That's uh, Carl Wonders, friend of the show and score enthusiast. Okay. Listening to film. Yes, right. Let's go to my number one pick. And I love this one. Anytime I, I get to talk about this actress, I'm very happy this was on my one-off romances list, but that was like a hundred episodes and five years ago. So I don't care. I'm basically picking it again. Five words and a hashtag used to be my wife. Hashtag trill a minute. It is Lenara Khan, the wife of Jadzia Dax. I can't even remember which Dax it was now, but the wife of Dax of in Deep Space Nine season four, episode six, rejoined. 
And I just, this is another one I thought of right away. I just think this is a, a cool way to look at one-off relative, Lenar Khan, the, the former wife of Dax. And I just think the chemistry between these two actors, Susanna Thompson, uh, who is the, the shout out, the actor I love to talk about. She's great in everything. She was got a bunch of Star Trek rules from Frame of Mind, obviously, to the Borg Queen in Voyager. Yeah, she's uh, she's eleven. She, she's a legend, and yeah, just the two of them together. You know, when it's uh, you just feel it when they're together. You just feel their their energy and these and uh, Terry Farrell and Susanna Thompson just did a great job. You just I'm just rooting for them when when they were on screen. I was all about it. So she's uh, she's amazing, Susanna Thompson, incredible. So yeah, I wanted to pick Lenar Khan again. Uh, Deb, what's your take on Dax and Lenara Khan? Fantastic pick, deep cut. I didn't, I didn't even think of this, but that's a terrific pick. I actually did. I actually did do a little, not Dax, but like I was when I was percolating, I was thinking of um, some of the talls. So I was kind of going symbiont prior host, but you picked a really good one. Right. Right. I, I definitely was thinking about trills and relatives and kind of what could be done uh, beyond this one too. Uh, Lee, any take? Yeah. And I, I really love that episode. It's just genuinely heartbreaking. And I, I always enjoy when people get that little mention. I think we've, we spoke about some earlier, but I like that just like offhand line in sort of um, in Purgatory's shadow, I think it is um, where they're, or is it by Inferno's like one of the two where they're like, Oh, we're looking at kind of sealing the wormhole and can is kind of looking into this one at the Trill Institute. Oh, yeah. and you're like, yeah, I get that nice little reference where it's just didn't need to even be mentioned. They could have just been some generic Starfleet scientist. And they're like, no, this ties into something that you might not have remembered from all the way at the beginning. Like so much of that, we remember the the romance and the relationship there. But actually, she was a really good scientist looking at stuff as well. So, yeah, nice little touch there. That Didn't even life. pick up on yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's one of those fun little Easter eggs they dropped. Oh, in. never. And I love that two-parter. Like, oh, yeah. it's a comfort food two-parter for me. Let's see what you can do with the secondary system. Fantastic. All right. Let's get into some secondary systems picks. Debbie, what just missed your list? Kind of the rest of the rest of family. So I thought of Robert Picard and <laughs> yeah. Marie Picard, yeah. um, Kyle Riker, Worf's stepfather, Sergei Rozhenko, because he was only in the one. Yep, he, he was, was only, only in, in family. One. Helena was in yes, two, yeah. Two, yeah. I actually thought about Maurice Picard from season two. Like, it just, he was always, like, Picard always didn't speak well of his father. And then when you find out what he was dealing with and behind he, the scenes. He also appeared in Tapestry. Did he? Uh, just yelling at Picard in, like, one scene. But... Uh, you know, then I cues. went for then I like kind of eliminated people who ended up being in other timelines. Um, Karina Cisco, Jake's wife. Oh, yeah. And um, Linus Paris, Tom's. Oh, that's wife. a really good one. Yeah. The, and all the before I and almost, after kids. I almost had Andrew Kim. He was a late cut. Yeah. Like he was oh. kind of on there. And my other and my other last minute cut was. Jill Ora, Gull Madrid's daughter from Jane oh, of Command. Oh, God, that would have been rough. Yeah, that's a good one, yeah. too. 
Yeah, she was only in it. That's for a like great two deep seconds, cut. That little girl. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the little girl who was in there while Gul Madrid was torturing Picard, and he was like, "How how do you let her in here?" And yeah, all right, those are good ones. I like that Andrew Kim shout out. Listen to uh, all the Asians on Star Trek. They just Brilliant did, episode just that one. It. Yeah, it's really. Oh, I love that episode. Yeah, really I do. Fascinating. Uh, Lee, how about you? Any secondary sisters? Yeah, I went with Amanda Plummer's father, Christopher Plummer, who had a little small role <laughs> in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. How did that not make your first list? Oh my God. It, it, it was one of those ones I really wanted to put that one in, but I was like, oh, got really heavy with the movies. And I was like, oh, it was course. between him and Sandra and Pillar. And I was like, no, yeah, Sandra Pillar cut. deserves her little moment. So, and yep. always you go deeper when you can. Um, I also went with Daniel Stewart the inner light and yes. a little kind of known co-writer on episode of voyager that is called a uh, prophecy uh so it was the story came from larry nemichek and j kelly burke aka janet nemichek who was the the co-story author of prophecy so those were my backup options okay i love that daniel stewart one that's yep, one that from the I've, inner light that's a good one that was uh, on my secondary systems pick as well probably my toughest cut was not in, not going with the inner light and some and even aline from the inner light is really really strong oh i loved her picard's wife so all right the rest on my list were i love ben vereen as Jordy's dad in interface it's a rough episode but and he's only in one quick scene so i didn't pick him uh i like travis mayweather's mom rihanna in horizon oh yeah and uh, she was really good in that the brother was uh kind of a little bit more rote kind of cookie cutter character but uh but i like horizon and then actually one of the big ones i thought she would get picked was data's mom juliana tanner uh, I thought from, of her. Uh, you could really have done a whole season planet. seven of Next yeah, Generation. You really could have. Yeah. You could have just done. <laughs> Seriously, I had, two, I had two season seven picks. So, uh, Fanula Flanagan, amazing as Data's mom, and the, yeah, I, I listed off all the Picard family members I didn't pick. Renee, R- uh, Renee, both Renees. Although you couldn't really pick her, Robert, Marie, Maurice, event. Uh, but most of them appeared in in a kind of a second reference or or appearance and then the esri tegan <laughs> and, and her and her murderous brother norvo and her orion syndicate working brother janelle and her annoying mom yanis but they're all too annoying to to choose and my special shout out i really wanted to pick him talk about him all the time he's one of my favorite characters is eric sung uh the the from the augment trilogy on enterprise but decided that that three episode arcs is a little too much for a one-off shout out as one of uh data's long not lost but uh relatives that help kind of map his his creation okay incredible i knew we'd have this is an awesome topic let's get into our regeneration cycle i got some awesome picks uh stats to recap here Computer, activate regeneration cycle. Alcoves beta and gamma. Okay, Lee. No, Debbie, recap your picks. Um, at number five, I had Timothy from Hero Worship, TNG. Number four, Q Jr. from Voyagers Q2. Number three, I had Renee Picard, the boy from TNG's family. Number two, I had Lal from TNG's The Offspring. 
And at number one, I had Kestra Troy Riker from Picard's Nepenthe. Love that pick of Timothy. So you had three from TNG and then one each from Voyager and Picard. And Lee, break down your five. Yeah, I've gone for Keegan Delancey, the son of John Delancey from Voyager Q2. Sandra Piller, the wife of Michael Piller, the the mother of Sean Piller for Star Trek Insurrection. Alfre Woodard, the god mummy of Jonathan Frakes for Star Trek First Contact. Malcolm McDowell, the uncle to Alexander Siddig for Star Trek Generations. And Joel Goldsmith, the son of Jerry Goldsmith in Star Trek First Contact. Fantastic. So you had... Four from TNG, all films, and Voyager. So, which is the, your wheelhouse? You do always. We had you on the movie villains, right? Yep. Yeah. And yeah. and, uh, and uh, somehow it always circles back to the film street, which I love. <laughs> okay, my list number five was Nikolai Roshenko, the great Paul Sorvino in Homeward, Worf's uh, brother. Number four was Emery Erickson, played by. Bill Cobb's Daedalus, that's uh, Archer's second father in Enterprise. We, I had Kestra Troy Riker from Nepenthe, Picard, Lulu Wilson. I had Richard Bashir, Julian's father, and Dr. Bashir, I presume, the actor Brian George, and Susanna Thompson as Lenara Khan, the wife of Dax in Rejoined from Deep Space Nine. So I had two from DS9, one from TNG, one from Enterprise, and one from Picard. Okay, here are some statistical breakdowns. We had two duplicates, so that seems about right uh, in terms of some of the big ones out there. And okay, I tried to break it down by the what type of relation this relative has. So we had one each, one brother, one nephew, one godmother, <laughs> in quotes, <laughs> one uncle, and then we had two... Uh, wives, so no husbands, so just two spouses, both wives, three daughters, uh, there was two fathers, and then there was five sons that led the way across the board. I was trying to think of who that second wife was. It was Sandra Pillar. That's right. So we had (laughs) so, yeah, so pretty good breakdown. And then by series, this is amazing, and it fits perfect. So we had one from Enterprise, two from Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Picard, and then leading the way with eight picks to no one's surprise is TNG, <laughs> which absolutely really was the series that kind of dropped into that family trope uh, as much as as any series. So, and not and that is not a negative. So it's, it's uh, amazing. Well, there were other family, but they weren't one offs. So. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, like you know, we. Yep. I mean, we get, we got Burnham's mother, but she keeps popping up, and, yeah, and Moogie and Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. Let's initiate our temporal inversion because it's time to hear from you. Initiate temporal inversion. Initiating. And for this week's Temporal Inversion, we're going back to episode 149 in our Top 5 Scenes at a Table episode. Uh, we got so many lists for, uh, for this episode. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. I had no idea until I saw my notes again. We had a bunch of lists in. One of them from friend of the show, Carl Wonders, who we talked about earlier. At Listening to Film on Twitter, this list rules his Scenes at a Table 
he had, so he picked five different types of tables. So his first one was conference table. Picard's FU to the Cardassians hashtag. We will be watching. It's TNG's The Wounded. Uh, he says a fantastic episode ends with Picard calling out Golma set, saying he knows Maxwell was right all along and turning his back on the set. Love that pick. He had a number four was coffee table. Every word cloaked small dozens hashtag closet space. It's D space nine call to arms. And it's O'Brien, Dax, and Rom discussing the mining the wormhole <laughs> and Rom's kind of upcoming wedding. I don't have enough closet space. <laughs> oh, so God, good. I love that. <laughs> so good. Uh, number three is a replimat table. He wants Federation medical secrets. Hashtag no. He wants to F you. And it's the introduction of Bashir meeting Garrick in past prologue from Deep Space Nine. So I'm going to read that again. He wants Federation medical secrets. Hashtag no, he wants to <laughs> you. That's his, uh, that's his <laughs> incredible. All right. Number two is a dining table. Eating foods, lost to time. Hashtag museum of lost histories. Oh, it's Voyager's Year of Hell. And the dinner scene with Anorix, Chicote, and Paris. And his number one, of course, a poker table. Thought I might join you. Hashtag if there's room. Of course, it's all good things. And the amazing end of TNG. And now, of course, that takes on a whole new light with the ending of Star Trek Picard as well. Oh, that's right. 100%. He, he has a secondary systems pick. This is awesome. From the Mark of Gideon. Dutch angles and plexiglass tables. <laughs> hashtag elevate the scene. And there is this amazing scene. He said, I don't have much to say about the scene itself, but the director's decision to shoot up at Kirk through a clear glass table has always stuck with me. And that is a memorable shot. Okay. Amazing list from Carl. Love it. So once again, these picks more than enough to clear ourselves from this week's temporal inversion. So as always, I want to thank everyone for all the great responses to the Trek Ranks podcast. Please keep your list coming to me at Trek Ranks on Twitter so we can retweet them. But we also want to hear from you. So put together your own list of top five one-off relatives or a list from any of our past shows. Give us a call at the Tricorder Transmissions at 609-512-5527. Or you can just record it, put it on, send me a DM at TrekRanks, and uh, we can connect that way too. So hopefully we'll hear from you so you can be featured on the next episode of Trek Ranks and on the next episode of Trek Ranks. We are doing a really cool topic. It's one of those topics that can go in a million different directions, but it's guaranteed to be enlightening, I think. It's the top five stargazing moments. Star you could pick Renee Picard moments. once again. So, so Renee no Picard kidding. is that was obviously, that's a big one. So we'll see if that one comes up. But there's a lot of ways you can think about stargazing. I've got a couple of different ways I'm going to be looking at this. So, Debbie and Lee, if you had to choose one stargazing moment that is not Renee Picard uh, at the end of Family, what would you pick? When we get to go on board the Stargazer for the first time, there you know, you I'd call it like there stargazing. That's what we do. Absolutely. On there. That is absolutely in play. The Stargazer is in play for something called Stargazing Moments. Uh, Debbie, what's your take? I'm going to go in an opposite direction. I am going to say the disappearance of all the stars when Burnham enters the wormhole at the end Ooh. of such, um, such, such we are. To, you know, to go to the future at the end of season yeah. two. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's a great pick. I love that. Super cool. Okay. This is going to be a cool topic. Some of the different things there. We're actually going to do that one with uh, Swapna Krishna, who's got a new book out called Stargazing. 
So that's going to be awesome. Okay. Channel closed. Reset. Subspace communications. Scrambler code Riker 1. Scrambler code Riker 1 acknowledged. Okay, we're going to close this episode out with a huge thanks to Debbie Moltisanti and Lee Hutchison. It was awesome having you guys on the show. Fantastic list. So any final Trek Scrambler codes, either one you want to relay before we depart, Debbie. Hashtag save Star Trek Prodigy and yeah. rip Enterprise Extra. There but thanks, Jim. <laughs> I love being on Trek Ranks. It, I have a good time. Lee, I learned a ton from you. And thanks for the book recommendation. Uh, no, it's my uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me both. Thank you, Lee. Awesome. Don't forget to follow Lee at Filibuster, his podcast, and uh, Star Trek VHS tapes, which is an awesome account. Okay. And finally, I want to thank everyone again for engaging with us again here on episode 162 of the Trek Ranks podcast. As always, I want to close by saying I'm looking forward to standing with you again here in this place where I belong. He's biting that female. No, he's not biting her. They're pressing lips. It's called kissing. Why are they leaving? Well, there are some things your father's just going to have to explain to you when he thinks you're ready. Just want to remind everyone again that the entire Trek Ranks catalog is available for you to download and listen to at trekranks.com and on your podcast player of choice. Our episodes never get carbon data, so check out the topics you've missed and maybe just want to listen to again over at trekranks.com. And a reminder to check out our friends Five Year Mission at fiveyearmission.net. They're writing a song for every episode of Star Trek, and you won't believe how great their music is. They also have a podcast at the Trek Geeks Network, so seek them out. You won't regret it. So, Arrow. Arrow, you know. Arrogant? Yes, arrogant. You don't seem that way to me. What does it mean anyway? Arrogant son of a... Let's talk about that later, shall we? Mummy? He 